Hello, and welcome to episode 77, the long-awaited episode 77 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me for this episode is a special first-time guest, Eric Jonsson. Um, you may know him from Twitter, Eric H. Jonsson uh, on Twitter, or from his writing at Tennis Portalen, or his podcasting from Sourcepodden. Those last two sources are in Swedish primarily, so if you're not a Swedish reader or listener, you might not get quite as much out of them as you would otherwise, but most of the, most of the Twitter content is in English and very much worth a follow. So, uh, uh, Swedish tennis is, is in enjoying a bit of a resurgence right now, and we'll come back to the players who are, are behind that in, in a little bit. That's the main reason why I wanted to get Eric on the show. But first thing, and this is, uh, Eric, I have to start with an apology because I gave you this long list of questions and topics, and I left off the most obvious thing, which is something you put together and I tried to help a little bit with maybe a month ago, your tennis hipster handbook. And right. Uh, it was, it's a fantastic idea, it really brings together some of the, the funnier and also more obnoxious characteristics of, of people on tennis Twitter. Can you just talk about this ten, tennis hipster handbook? What made you think of it? Like what, what is a tennis hipster? Like, tell us about that. Um, well, yeah, let me pull it up, uh, real quick, actually. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I just thought of, um, well, I, I guess I should start off by saying I am probably one of the biggest tenor hipsters out there. So it's uh, a lot about poking fun at myself. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's tennis hipster is the nice way to say it. The, the <laughs> less nice way to say it would be tennis elitist, uh, which I suppose there are some elements of, uh, but it's basically going around this idea of to be a tennis fan, uh, to be a proper true uh, tennis fans, so to speak, you need to uh, have these views. Uh, my occasion has to be your favorite commentator and what have you. Um, so um, I don't know. I, I just started making some notes in my, fo in my phone w one day and uh, then asked people on Twitter about it uh, for suggestions and, and got lots of great ones. And it, uh, yeah, people enjoyed it. So, so that's how it came about. So Mike Cation is the, the, the I've mentioned him on many past podcasts as well. He's the commentator from the the USTA Challenger Tour right. uh, broadcast, and there's a few players who are sort of the hipster favorites. Who are the the players we're talking about here? Uh, well, um, obviously Benoit Paire. That that was your suggestion, I believe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically anyone who isn't and. Um, hasn't ever been top 100 uh so uh yeah i pair and um i don't know i'm trying to is is paulo lorenzi on that list oh yeah that list. yeah he's he's most certainly on that list um carlos berlock um yeah a couple more grinders yeah, basically, if it's someone you've heard of, then they don't... I mean, Lorenzi was a top 50 player for a while, so he's, yeah. he's really got to be something special to be a tennis hipster favorite while still like, competing at the ATP level. And I also noticed in uh, when I was clicking through links preparing for this episode that uh, that the podcast you're involved with, Sourcepotent, it refers to itself as the, the most obscure Swedish tennis podcast. And how many Swedish tennis podcasts are there? Uh, well, I can think of three uh, from now, the top you, of my head. Yeah. 
Are you confident that yours is the most obscure of the three? Uh, well, that's uh, basically us poking fun at ourselves again. Um, Alex Theodoridis, who runs the site, uh, in every podcast he has um, the most obscure thing of the week, basically, where, where we uh, find something out of the ordinary that, it, that has happened, uh, basically. So he, uh, we like to use the word obscure a lot, so it's mostly about that. And it's also easy for me to understand because it's basically a cognate in Swedish and English, so I yeah. didn't even have to look it up. <laughs> Uh, so thank you for that, both you and people who uh, d- who defined the Swedish language. Um, so what's an example of like an obscure thing that's worth mentioning on the on the podcast? Um, well, it can be a lot of things. Uh, I don't know. I, I remember last time I was on uh, uh, a couple of months ago. Actually, I, it was a challenger final, I think, between Tennis Sandgren and someone uh and sangren went 0 and 16 on break points whereas his opponent went two and two um so it, it, that kind of thing and, and it can be someone in tennis media who has said something outrageous uh it when venus williams uh walked on court against rebecca peterson and she refused to hold the ball kid's hand that was one thing so it, oh. yeah it can be basically anything okay um so hopefully we'll come up with a few more of these things. And since we're talking about obscure tennis topics and tennis hipster stuff, I'm wondering where you think the next-gen finals fit into this. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast, because not only do we have Mikhail Imer um, in the next-gen finals with some Swedish presence there, along with uh, the Norwegian presence as well with Kasper Ruud, uh, but it, it is sort of, a, sort of a hipster scene. Like, I think people have... Uh, a wide variety of opinions about the event itself. But when you look at the players who show up, then these are the players who like the, who like self described insiders, like snobby people like us like to get excited about. Uh, like we know about Yannick Sinner before the regular Italian fans do stuff like that. Mm. Um, so do you get the sense that, that this, let's just call it like tennis hipsters for lack of a better word. Do you, do you get the sense that we've sort of accepted the next gen finals as a, as an enjoyable fun thing and not this, not this offensive ATP exhibition that's just trying to grab money or something. Right. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I see it's actually polarizing even, uh, among ten- tennis hipsters, which is, uh, rare actually. But I think, um, as you say, that because these are young players coming through and, and players, uh, tennis hipsters, uh, probably have seen a lot and, and know a lot about and seen them pit up against each other, so to speak. It, it makes for a um, great event in that regard, even though tennis hipsters, by rule, uh, need to hate exhibitions. So, yeah, it's, I, th- I think that's why it's polarizing. Yeah, that's an interesting point that I personally am extremely uninterested in exhibitions in mm-hmm. general. Like, And it's fine that they exist. I'm glad people enjoy them. I'm glad that players can make some extra money in the offseason without having to work too hard. That's all fine. I just don't care. I don't want to watch it unless there's a lot on the line. But I watched several of the matches from the next-gen finals, and there's no ranking points, but there is a lot of money based on results. And it seems like the players are pretty invested in it. I mean, did, did you get the sense that the players were performing at like a, 
an exhibition level or a tour level or somewhere in between? Uh, I, I think... Uh, I think they wanted to give it their all, actually. Uh, like you said, it, you can tell uh, the players care. Um, and I think they have previous years as well. Well, except Dennis Shapvala when he was uh, during a coaching time talking about coffee. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think in general, like you said, there's there's a lot of money involved and, and there's um, probably, uh, you know, the status of being the best young player is up for grabs uh and, and that kind of stuff so i i think i definitely think they care yeah and i guess we saw that with uh with the injury to alejandro davidovich fokina in his Ooh. match against kasparud like he was he seemed to be pretty seriously hurt and like i think i was i was only half following it on twitter and i saw you talking about it i think you said it was it looked like the end of his season and then i looked at the score later and like well he finished the match what happened and he so he came back out and played with the and not only did he finish that match but he came back and played the next day i mean that that doesn't sound like an exhibition to me yeah yeah i definitely agree when he he fell it looked like he twisted his knee and and knee injuries as we know can be uh very damaging um but and as he walked back to the chair, he, he leaned both on the physio and someone else, and he had a somewhat lengthy medical timeout. And he came back out, and he, for the first few games, just limped around. Uh, but then again, he's the kind of player who can create winners and power out of nowhere. So, it, and it didn't really seem to hinder him that much, actually. And as he kept playing, uh, he started to move better again. Uh, so, yeah, like you say, if it was just an ex- exhibition, he probably wouldn't have finished the match. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Or maybe he wouldn't have even pushed himself to the point of, of getting the injury in the first place. He might have just taken it easier in the, the, the sets and points that came before. Um, so... So the big story from the next gen finals, in terms of the the, the actual performances on the court, has got to be Yannick Sinner. He's the youngest guy in the tournament, um, pretty new member of the top one hundred. I think he just broke into the top one hundred with the Antwerp semifinal last month, or yeah, about a month ago. Um, so he 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 beat did he beat Tiafo in the semifinals? I'm blanking for a second, but he and then he beat Alex Dimonor in the final. Yeah. Uh, uh, or had you seen much of Sinner before? I mean, it, it, everybody knew he was a prospect to watch, but I mean, did did, did you think this was the the sort of thing that he could potentially do against these guys who are older and more experienced? Um, a week like at this point, yes. Uh, a few months ago, probably not. Uh, so it depends. Uh, yeah, it depends what time frame we're talking about, but. I mean, he's gotten some really good tour wins just last month over over Gael Monfils and others. Uh, I think he made a semifinal in Antwerp. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we knew he was capable uh, at this point, but at the start of the year, absolutely not. He's, he started off in futures, losing in early rounds. Um, I first saw him and got to know him when he won the uh, Bergamo Challenger uh, in February, completely out of nowhere. Um and uh, you see those performances sometimes from players who have done nothing and suddenly ha- just have a great week. And I and probably most other people thought that was such an event, so to speak. But um, he's just kept on 
progressing and it's uh i've i've tried to come up think of other uh players who've done something like this uh previously but i i I think it might be unprecedented, at least in the last decade or two. Yeah, and he's and he's certainly so much younger than than his peers at the tournament, or so much better than his actual peers by age. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the the next highest ranked player who is his age is ranked three hundred and twenty, uh, and now he's in the top one hundred. And that that top one hundred ranking doesn't give him credit for winning four out of five matches in, in Milan and uh, beating Alex Di Minore, who's a legit top twenty five sort of player. So. So yeah, it's, it's it's a huge accomplishment and sort of a validation of of all the challenger success and a little bit of tour success he's had this season. And you make a good point that a lot of times when we see someone who we're not familiar with come out of nowhere, win a challenger, uh, we kind of have to be careful, right? It, it's it, it's easy to say this guy's seventeen, he he just won a challenger, he is the the, the future, he's the next Federer or whatever. Uh, apparently, people in the Italian media are saying he's the he's the next Bjorn Borg. <laughs> uh, so, I, I think we're it, that's a little bit premature, and it's always tough with young players because like, you can imagine that trajectory that you know they're doing great at seventeen, they'll be great at eighteen, they'll be great at nineteen, and they'll keep improving until they're great at twenty four, which means you're number one in the world. Uh, but there's so many so many players who are at least pretty good at 17 or, or competing well at challengers at, in their teams who don't accomplish much of anything or at, at least maybe never make it to the top 10 or something like that. It, it, it's certainly not that not that anything is written in the stars for Yannick Sinner yet. I mean, do you think, seeing what you've seen of his game, especially this past week when he played so well, I mean, do you think he has the game to be, like, let's say a top five player? Yeah, um... Best case scenario, yes, absolutely. Uh, like you say, there there's a lot of uh, examples of players who have come through and looked great. And uh, take Grigor Dimitro, for example. At this point, most people uh, seven, eight, nine years ago would have said he probably would be a um, multi-slam winner at this point. But he, but he hasn't been. Uh, he isn't basically, and and there are so many other things that come into play. Um, I I often say it's hard to say beyond top twenty potential, because after that there's a lot of things that come into play. Uh, mentality becomes more important, handling pressure, consistency, uh, that kind of thing. But but yes, he is a special talent, and and I. I would not be surprised to see him top five in a in a few years and and contending for slams. Um, so, what do you, what do you think? You you and Carl often do the uh, what's the mean slam count for for Sinner? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me throw that at you. Do do you have any? Guess? That's a, that's tough. I guess my my default for a for a big prospect like this on the men's side is maybe two or three. Mm. Like it, I think it's tough to project more than that. But at the same time, you have this, there's so many unknowns in the future, right? I mean, it, for the last 10 years, you could be pretty safe and say, like, this up-and-coming player isn't going to win any because they're going to play the big four for the rest of their career, or at least a big chunk of their career. And now we don't really know who, if Sinner's one of the best players in the game in five years, like, he might not have to be as good as someone five years ago would have had to have been. Um, but I mean, I agree with everything, everything you said that he's, 
like the game is there, I think, uh, or that certainly the potential for to have a, a top five type game is there, but we just have to see how he reacts physically to playing a full season, uh, whether whether people figure out more holes in his game that they can exploit, and that's always a possibility. We're still kind of waiting to see that happen with uh, Matteo Berrettini. People are talking so much about waiting to see the top players expose his backhand this week in, in London, um, but it hasn't really held him back much so far. Um, what about what about Alex Di Minore? I mean, he, he's in the range of next gen players. He's sort of the veteran. He's he's going to age out of the the next gen finals after. Well, he has now. This is his last year doing it. I think but he can play next year as well. Can he really? Yeah, wow. I think he's twenty now. So yeah, he can play next year. I stand corrected. Okay, I should have gone with how he looked since he still <laughs> looks fifteen. Yeah. Um. So maybe. So we'll see if he's back next year. Um, so he was a finalist last year. He lost in the final um, two years in a row now. And it wasn't that great of a showing in the, the final yesterday. He lost pretty badly to Sinner. Um, I, I've had just assumed it would be a pretty straightforward win for Demon Nora. Like the, the experience would come into play. Like he's probably just flat out a better player right now uh, than Sinner is. But... I think after last year, Demon Noor was ha, made such a breakthrough. Um, I, I think a lot of people were kind of skeptical and waiting to see what he could do physically uh, to overcome his size. And he, he dealt with a lot of those doubts last season. So I think a lot of people expected to st- or were excited to see if he could continue to take a step forward this year. And I don't think he really fulfilled that. And maybe this is sort of related to what you're talking about, that like you can project top 20, but beyond top 20, it's tough to, to really differentiate between players. I mean, do you think Dimonor is still improving? Do you think he's a better player now than he was a year ago? Yes. Um, I mean, I mean, for me, I, I saw that question in your show notes. And I, to be honest, I was a little bit surprised because for me this year definitely has been a step forward for him. I mean, he has won three titles. Uh, he made a couple of finals last year, but he didn't win a title. Um, and um, I, he struggled a little bit with uh, some injuries, I think, in the spring and, and lost four or five matches in a row. Uh, but despite despite barely winning any matches between the Australian Open and the US Harcourt swing, he's now in top 20. Um, I think I, I looked at ELO before before recording and think he was 14 there. Um, so I think it is it is a step forward. It's not two steps forward um, because there are there's still a question over his ability to do it against the very best. Um, he is... 4 and 18 against top 20 players and the wins have all come this fall so maybe maybe he is he has taken yet another step this fall but the wins were against uh an injured Kenish Corey and out of form Chorich and uh two wins against Batista Gut who is still a good player but hasn't been in great form of late uh, um either so i mean yes there are some question marks but looking at this year compared to last, uh, I, th- I think it's definitely a step forward. Yeah, that's interesting. You point out that Elo, I hadn't, I hadn't looked at him there, and you're right, he's 14th overall. He's 12th in the hardcourt Elo rankings. I mean, you're right to point out he has this really solid fall that um, apparently I largely missed. But 
Do you believe that? Do you think he's the twelfth best player on hard court right now? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard. Uh, I, I would probably need to look at who's 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 around him. Um, but I, I mean, it sounds about right to me. Uh, to be honest, I, I think he is. Uh, they, oh, look! Uh, yeah, Shapovalov is ahead of him. That surprises me. Um, yeah, I was. He, t- he had a really big leap because of his performance in Paris, and right. I, I was surprised how much he 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 gained in the Elo rankings. But but yeah, he's. I, I wouldn't push Shapovalov above Dimonor at all. Yeah, yeah, but I I mean I mean fourteen twelve they're about it sounds about right to me. I I I think he uh, is that good actually. Um, and I don't know. It feels like if he if he has a an even more consistent year next year, he probably should be able to push for top ten. I still have high thoughts of him. I I see on Twitter that I think more highly of him than most people actually. But I um I I think that's about right. Fourteen um, with potential to do even better. So you wouldn't be surprised with, say, quarterfinals at the Australian Open in a couple of months? Uh, I mean, it all, it all depends on the draw. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I, if he avoids, you know, uh, Big Three and probably Medvedev I, I, in, in round four, I don't see anyone who would be a big favorite over him, so... Uh, depending on form, uh, obviously, Team Tsitsipas would probably be um, Bertini as well. So I guess I'm s- sort of talking myself self out of it right now. But no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't be... I would be a little bit surprised, but definitely not shocked. I would love to see the, the Medvedev match you sort of hinted at. Medvedev does seem to be the pretty clear-cut top guy behind the big three right now, but... Yeah. Uh, and, and they've played twice in the past, both last season. But the first time they played, that was in Sydney at the beginning of the 2018 season. And that went to 7-5 in the third set. Hmm. So, I mean, Medvedev was still very much on the rise then as well. They were both, neither of them made, that was in the Sydney final. Neither of them made the cut for that tournament. Medvedev qualified and Dimonor was a special entry from, I guess, Brisbane the week before. Uh but very close, very competitive match. So it would be interesting to see where they're both at now since both of them are much better players than they were then. Uh, I mean, I, I would I would not want to be the person sitting on the sidelines counting shots in that match. <laughs> we could have some serious rallies. Um, so, so for you, we, we've seen, we've seen some players in the, from the last couple of years of the next gen finals successfully take a step forward. Tsitsipas, uh, played in Milan last year and he's in London now this week. Um, Medvedev was well, also last year in, in Milan and he's, he's of course, like I'm saying, maybe the, well, probably the fourth best player in the world right now. Um, do you think that, that one of these guys is going to be in, well, not in London because <laughs> it'll be in, tu- in Turin. <laughs> Um, but is one of these guys going to qualify for the tour finals next year? Um, probably not. I mean, I, I just said I wouldn't be surprised if, if Dimonar was, was, was top 10 uh, next year. So I, I 
guess him uh, in that case. But I mean, that's, that's the perfect way to hedge your bets. So yeah. you're saying probably not, which might be statistically true. And then I wouldn't be surprised yeah. means, you know, you've sort of covered all your bases if uh, if he does. But so Demon is your pick, though, of the of the eight in Milan this year. Yes. I mean, the hipster thing to say would be Sinner, but I, I don't know that definitely feels like a year or two too too early for him. Yeah, if Sinner's in in tour next year, then I mean he will probably be like a generational talent. We'll yeah. know by then he's he, he's going he already will be great, but he's he's really gonna be great if he's accomplishing that at, at nineteen. Either that or the ATP's gonna have to renegotiate some deal with the organizers <laughs> in Turin so they'll get their own Italian wildcard. <laughs> In which case, it might still be Berrettini. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, it, it could be interesting, the, the fight for the Tour and wildcard. Let's hope that doesn't happen. I really... Um, which, I, I hadn't thought about this before, but generally, I'm very anti-wildcard, and we don't need to get into that because any regular listener to this podcast has heard me rail about it enough. But in, I think when the Next Gen Finals started, I was also anti-wildcard. The idea that one out of eight places in a tournament would go to someone who didn't qualify, uh, that that logically that seems outrageous to me. But in this case, um, like Sinner was obviously well enough qualified to win the tournament. I think it w- was last year Gianluigi Quincy was uh, was the wildcard and he, he either won a match or played better than expected. Yeah. He, he wasn't in an embarrassment to Italian tennis. What's your take on this? Do you think we should have a, a home country wild card in a tournament like this? In a tournament like this, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, we've just talked about how how great. Well, at least I think uh, the uh, tor- tournament is. But like we said, it, it is an exhibition, which which opens up the, the possibility of a lot of stuff uh, which I'm sure we'll get into but like I, I, I don't mind them having a wild card in a tor- tournament like this um, if it ensures that more people will come greater atmosphere and what have you uh, I mean absolutely why not and it does seem like they, whether because of Sinner or for some other reason they succeeded in getting people to turn out like it, you you probably watched more than I did, so you can speak to this better than I can. But whenever they showed the crowd uh, in the matches that I watched, it was it looked full. Yeah. And my Italian friend, who was I think he didn't end up going. He was planning on going, but uh, it sounded like the tickets were expensive. Like there were th- there were tickets for the final that were well over two hundred euro, yeah. uh, and apparently they were selling them to watch not even the best tennis players in the world, the best. 21 and under tennis players in the world, which is not normally something that sells. Um, do you think that that Sinner has gotten more wild cards than he should have on tour? I mean, I guess it hasn't been that many, but that's how he got into Antwerp with a wild card. He got a wild card into Vienna. So if it weren't for the wild cards, he wouldn't have really had much wild card into St. Petersburg as well, a, a little bit before that. Without that, he basically wouldn't have been in any tour level events do you think that that do you think that's okay that that the wild cards exist for 
for a guy who, I mean, usually if you're giving wild cards to an 18-year-old who's outside the top 100, it's someone who isn't ready and is going to lose in the first round. So, I mean, w- would you give a wild card to, to someone like him if you were in charge of these tournaments? Yeah, probably. I mean, um, if you hadn't gotten the uh, Antwerp wild card, uh, I would have seen him in Stockholm because he, he was in Qualis, uh, the entry list. So I'm, I'm a little bit upset about that. But uh, I mean, if I if I was the tournament director, uh, I probably definitely would have given it to someone like him. Uh, builds relationship for for future years and what have you. Um, but I mean, I, I see what you're saying. It's, I mean, it probably doesn't really need uh, these wild cards either, uh, because he'll he'll get the results needed to to progress through the rankings regardless. Uh, but then again, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit more on the side of wild cards being a necessary evil, uh, because. Stockholm and Stockholm Open and Swedish Open uh, probably would not have done well at all if the guarantee of having both Emer brothers there in the last few years, uh, if if there wasn't that guarantee. So I mean, and if you give it to someone like Sinner, I I don't know. I I guess I don't really care to be honest. <laughs> That's a that's a fair answer, and it's it's probably a good thing for me to hear because I get very very emotionally invested in these arguments sometimes. And if if you don't care, then the average tennis fan definitely doesn't care. Um, but it is interesting to see just how many wild cards he's gotten over the course of the season. He he got a wild card into that Bergamo Challenger in February. Mm. Um, he took a wild card into a twenty five k the next year the next week in uh, Trento. Um, in Italy the following week. Uh, he has wild cards into qualies throughout the year. So it, it's a very different season than it would otherwise have been because so many tournament, tournament directors believed him in, in him or wanted to invest in the relationship or or whatever. I mean, if you are keeping your tournament director hat on and thinking in terms of the Stockholm Open, you know, I totally understand the benefit of having the Emer brothers, having some Swedish presence in the draw. Do you think that fans would have been excited about seeing a, a promising 18 year old like Yannick Sinner in the Stockholm draw? Um, fans like me, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> how, how many fans like you are there in, in who might go to the Stockholm Open? Uh, not too many. Uh, it's probably a fraction. Uh, I mean, most most people who, who go to Stockholm Open and Swedish Open uh, are casual fans. Uh, if even that, some some people just go because it seems like a fun event uh, and don't even know tennis. So I mean, I don't think he would have drawn a lot of people. Um, more people might have gone to see Qualis because of nerds like me. Um, but in in general, I don't think it would have made a huge difference. Uh, it's the Emer brothers and. The big four basically who can draw crowds in Sweden, not many other players. And I think that's probably true in in most places. And um, so, it, it, thinking of it from the tournament director's perspective, you are thinking in terms of the long term of investment, which is why, like, there was a year where Zverev got even more wild cards than Sinner has gotten this year. I think there was at least a year, maybe more, where Dimitrov got 
a ton of wild cards. So there's always one guy that everybody wants to have at their tournament. And even if the, the hometown fans aren't really going to care too much. And right now, Sinner is clearly that guy. And based on his performance this week, A, he deserves to be that guy. And B, every tournament director, even the ones who weren't paying attention before, they're going to, to want him at their event. Yeah. So I... I I promised we'd get to Swedish tennis and talk about the Emers, but I want to talk a little bit more about the next-gen finals and all the rule innovations, which I think is part of what you you used the exactly right word about um, about how fans feel about this tournament, that it's polarizing uh, with the fact that it's an exhibition, but it doesn't really feel like it. It has all these rule innovations that a lot of people have strong feelings about. So there, there's a long list of, of different rules that they're using from like a different scoring system the, the five sets where sets are played to four all the way down to to coaching and fans moving around the the stadium of these i think it's a list of 12 rules or something that are, are in place for the the next gen finals do you have a favorite one that you'd maybe like to see adopted more widely um yeah if i have to pick one it's probably or rather definitely coaching um i i know that is maybe the most polarizing of all uh, inventions, um, but I, I just think it's it gives you a great look into the emotional state of mind of a player, what they're trying to do in court, uh, and it gives a lot of tactical insight and makes us get to know the coaches, which is pretty rare to be honest. And um, I don't know it, it, for casual fans watching. Uh, they probably get into the sport more because they understand what's going on and what to look for as well, which I suppose a good commentator could do, but but the additional insight we get directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, adds a lot of value. And um, I just think it's a great service to the viewer. Um, obviously, there, there's the argument of, well, not all players have coaches, so it would just benefit those to do. That's true, but that's true uh, on practice court as well. So I, I don't, I, I see the downsides, but to me, with uh, how great of a service it is for us viewers, it's the positives out, outweigh the negatives quite strongly for me. And there's something, I didn't think about this until the commentators of the Next Gen Finals brought it up, that they do it in a unique way. So players have a headset they can put on when they want coaching during a changeover, and the coaches don't come down like they do in WTA matches. So the coaches have their own headset. When the players want coaching, they put on a headset and they have a you know semi-remote conversation with their coach. Do you think that's a better solution than having the, the coach run down on the court like the, the women's tournaments do? Um, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see that going either way. So I've got a crazier idea. Right. Um, and so everything you're talking about, these are arguments that I think are, they're out there. I mean, pe- pe- out there in the sense that people are talking about them. I think a lot of people agree with you that it's, it, and I agree that it's super interesting to hear what the coaches have to say. Something that Carl and I have talked about on a lot of episodes of this show is, is how much coaches simplify things. Like if you hear commentators talk, one of the luxuries that commentators have is they have nothing to do but talk. I mean, they, they have hours of, of air to fill. So they can talk about all these details. They can talk about special situations. They can change their opinions from, from one minute to the next. And they don't have to worry about implementing anything. But if you're a coach, you not only have very little time to talk, but you have to think about what your player is really going to implement 
And often that means giving them just one bullet point or just a couple bullet points. Even um, in in the Mikhail Emer match against Hugo Humbert, uh, Humbert's coach had written down his notes. So when when Humbert put his headset on, the coach just you know read his bullet points basically, which is a nice segue to my actual qu- idea slash question is. Uh, Umbert doesn't speak very good English. His his coach is also French, so of course they were were speaking French um, during the changeovers, which meant that I, for one, had no idea what they were talking about. The commentators, I don't think, had any idea what they were talking about, which leads to this weird situation where the commentators speculate about what the coaching is, which isn't which isn't any better than having no coaching at all. So. What would you think about a rule that says that, that that the coaching conversations have to be in English? Because they, at least in part, they're designed to benefit the fans. Right. Um, I am against that. Uh, I mean, if it becomes more common on the A to B tour, uh, I think um, TV probably will have translators for the most common languages. Uh, among which French is obviously one, um, but I I don't know I I strongly feel we shouldn't control what language uh, they speak uh, because it w- would be limiting in terms of uh, quality and quantity of inf- information that can be passed to the player. And um, while it's a great resource for us viewers, um, it has to be set up so it's. Uh, it favors the, the players uh, as much as possible because then we get into a situation where uh, native speakers uh, of English uh, can get a lot more out of out of the coaching timeouts than someone who isn't like Umber, for example. Does it change your opinion at all to realize that there are very few native speakers of English who are any good at tennis? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I just think, I, I don't know, I, I don't like uh, authoritarian uh, rules like that. I, well, when you put it that way, I sound like a, I sound like a horrible monster now. <laughs> I don't, and honestly, I, 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 I don't think I would advocate for this either, but it is interesting to think about that like the arguments for coaching are so much about fan enjoyment and analysis and then we end up in these situations like I'm talking, well, the, the, both sides of the Emer-Umber match, the uh, Emer's coaching visits were in, in Swedish and Umber's were in French. So like in both cases, I probably understood about five words out of each changeover uh, and then got to hear the, the commentator speculate about what they were actually talking about. Uh, so I didn't gain anything from that, but maybe it made the, the quality of play better, which is, I, I, I guess that's enough for me. Um, you had some comments on Twitter. I think you were talking about the, the singles only court. So right. the, the court that they laid down, I mean, it's just special for this event. I don't think there's normally tennis there. Um, you don't have to draw the doubles lines in unless you're going to play doubles, which is another thing I realized is kind of, kind of odd that how, how much doubles is on TV. I mean, basically none yet. Every time you see tennis on TV, there are doubles lines there. Uh, are you, uh, do you like watching tennis with the, a slightly unusual looking court without the doubles lines yeah yeah i i actually prefer it um i mean it takes some getting used to because you're used to having the double doubles tram lines or whatever uh there but as soon as you're used to it, it 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 makes you view the game a little bit in a different way because you see uh 
when they open up the court with great angles, for example, it, it becomes a lot more apparent uh, just how far off the court uh, they hit the ball sometimes and, and, and stuff like that. So I would like to see that more, but I realize it's incredibly hard to do because almost all tournaments have both singles and doubles. But yeah, I, th- I think it's great for, for uh, us viewers again. Yeah, that's a good point. That uh, that it, it really makes clear how uh, how extreme some of the angles are. I didn't I didn't think about that, but just calling to mind the last couple of matches that I watched, then that's exactly right. And you had a theory too that we don't have the data to test it, but you thought maybe uh, players are a little bit more conservative around the sidelines. Uh, they they have to f- focus more on the singles lines. Do you think that maybe players are making fewer errors on the sidelines than they would on normal court? Uh, I've given this quite a bit of thought in the last couple of days. It, it wasn't my theory. Uh, it was uh, Lisa Senior, I believe her name is, uh, on Twitter. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I my my gut feeling was yes that it does focus the mind more. But but the more I thought about it, just how many hours haven't these players spent on court with doubles uh, tram lines tram lines next to the singles lines? And I I just think it's uh intuitive and natural at this point so so it probably doesn't affect them uh after all it probably would affect someone like me more who who plays tennis a couple of hours a week at most um but for these players they're they're just so used to it i i I don't think it does uh affect them a lot yeah, that's that's my gut instinct as well. I mean, I think that's generally an argument that you can apply to a lot of questions like this. That if if you think some out some external factor is going to affect professionals who have played thousands of hours of tennis in their life, it probably won't. <laughs> they'll they'll be able to figure it out. Um, but I think someone else on on in that Twitter conversation had had checked and found that there aren't very many matches in the match charting database uh, from the next gen finals, but that is changing. Um, I did a couple this week and there's another contributor to the project named Carrie, who I think is doing all of Demon Noor's matches. So maybe once, uh, once all of those are in the database, we'll have maybe 10 or 12 total next gen finals matches. So I mean, it's not a great data set, but it might be enough to compare to matches. Those same players have, have, been involved in with normal courts and see whether there's any truth to that at all. I mean, it, it would be interesting to at least know one way or the other. Um, so a couple last things on the, on the rule innovations. The big one is the scoring system. So we have these, it's a best of five, not best of three, and individual sets are first to four games with a tie break at three all, and then individual games are no ad, and the server decides uh, which direction to go on the d- deciding point. Um, first off, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Do you enjoy watching matches with the with the this altered scoring system? Um, I mean, it it takes a lot of getting used to, uh, a lot more so than than the singles only court, of course. Uh, I generally don't mind for these events. Uh, I can probably even get on board with it being pushed into 250s, but not beyond that, because 250s uh, are dying tournaments, basically. They need something. But 
I, I don't like that that the tiebreak is at three all. That's that's ludicrous to me. I, I that's way too short. Make it four all, and and I'm happy with it. What what I'm not happy with, however, is is no ad. Uh, I think it just adds a lot of chance and luck uh, to the game, which we definitely don't need more of. And uh, you had a question in in the show notes as well about uh, momentum shifts that perhaps. There are fewer uh, momentum shifts in with this type of scoring system, and I think no ad is at fault for that as well, um, because winning a five deuce game, say, it, it's more likely to shift momentum than just winning a deciding point. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and uh, I mean, I'm not sure I believe in momentum shifts at all. <laughs> so, I mean, the, it, I think I need to see more evidence, or in my case, generate more evidence to to confidently talk about my momentum shifts. But that seems to be the conventional wisdom that yeah, if you, if you come through a five deuce game and hold, then you've got the momentum. And one of the theories in favor of the the fast four format is is that it it has more opportunities for players to shift the momentum just because, I mean, not because anything happened, but because it's another unit of the match. So if if you lose the first set 6-4, like maybe you got broken early, you can't break back, you have to wait 45 minutes for the scoreboard to reset, and then you can try to shift the momentum and bring a new game to the second set. With, with fast four, best of five, you have more opportunities to do that. But I'm not sure I really see that. I mean, for one thing, there were a handful of matches that were basically blowouts, uh, this year and shouldn't have been. I mean, there should be these opportunities for players to get some coaching, turn things around. Um, often it was the the higher ranked player who was blown out. Uh, I just didn't really see that vibe of playing out on court. Um, so I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe we just need more research on this. But um, but I'm I'm not sold either. And the, the no ad especially. I mean, I, I can accept it. I've seen enough doubles that it's it's okay. But um, but I've also done some research into that. And when you think about what the exciting moments are, the high leverage points in a match, then that's where they are. They're deuce. They're break points. And the, the whole win by two nature of the game is what makes it so exciting. So it seems like a mistake to take that out. Uh, so last small thing about the, the rule innovations is, actually I'm going to have two more, but the first one is the last two years, 2017 and 2018, there was a third place match on the final day of the tournament. So the two semifinal losers played a match for third and fourth place and the third place winner got some more prize money. They didn't do that this year. I didn't read anything about it, but I mean, it didn't happen. And it actually didn't happen in 2017 either because Borna Chorich, I think, withdrew from that match. Um, but in a way it seems like a great idea. I mean, often it, I guess at a normal tournament, you'd have a singles and a doubles final on, on Sunday or whatever the last day of the tournament is, but it's just two matches. Whereas most days of the tournament have at least four, often more, um, this tournament, you only have one match on the final day that apparently people were paying 200 euros to get into, um, Aside from the Olympics, there's never these third place, fourth place matches, whereas in other sports, I think they're pretty common. Uh, do you think that's something that could be more widely accepted in tennis? I mean, that tennis could benefit from to have more like placement matches at the end of tournaments? Um, could tennis benefit from it? Maybe. Uh, I mean, you make some good points, but personally, I 
don't like it. I, I, I just think that third or fourth doesn't really matter that much. Yes, it does if we're talking the Olympics, because then you get a medal uh, if you win the third place match. But I, I, I don't know. I, I just struggle to get excited for a match between in lack of better way to phrase this, between two losers, basically. Uh, which I guess we get in round robin as well, but this is something different. We're already in the playoff stage. Uh, Eric, you have to be careful there, because the ultimate tennis hipster thing is a first-round match between lucky losers. (laughs) Or a first... Actually, there's even better. A first-round match between a lucky loser and the person he lost to in qualifying. Yeah. But I see your point. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's going to become more common, but it is. It, it, I, I was surprised to see that it went away because I mean, one reason not to do it that you didn't mention is, is that these players all are probably going somewhere yeah. else next week, so yeah. they've got another match in a couple of days. So I, I understand they wouldn't want to do it, and this is the one week of the year where most of these players are done. I, I, I guess Yannick Sinner is playing a challenger next week, but everyone else is done, so they could have played this match. But uh, in the middle of the season, it would be it would be a very bizarre scheduling choice to stick around to try to win third place in Antwerp or something. Yeah. Um, so last question about all these rule innovations, which I think have taken us about 25 more minutes than I expected because there's so many and because you have interesting thoughts about so many of them. Um, so when the next gen finals were rolled out a couple of years ago, it, it one of the big attractions was that it was going to be this laboratory for innovation. So almost all of the things that are unusual about it now were in place from the beginning. I mean, the automatic line calling, the the free movement in the stands, the fast four, all this stuff. There have been little tweaks from year to year, but it's basically the same event that it was two years ago. So do you think that if it's going to be an innovation lab, then like some of these things should be making their way into the rest of the tour or they should be trying different things every year? I mean, w- would that be more interesting than just having this sort of unique event with this special set of 10 rules that's the same every year? I think having a set format uh, makes it easier for fans to get behind and fans to follow. Um, and But I, I don't know, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, I think maybe they shouldn't have added all these 10, 12, whatever rules um, for the first year, but and they probably should have eased it in a little bit, a couple more every year. But at, at this point, I'm not sure exactly what more they can do. I, I, I don't know. I, and I think, I, I just think just having the, the set format makes it easier for fans to, to accept that they know what's going, what's going to happen each year. I, and I would certainly agree in terms of getting the local fans invested in the tournament. It's like like we've said, the stands were full. Apparently, the tickets were expensive, so the the locals have bought into it. Uh, it's it, it it's just a little odd that it's the it's the oddball tournament that's no longer odd, and it only took three years to get there. So I promised talk of Swedish tennis from our Swedish expert. And now that we've been talking about the next-gen finals for 45 minutes, we're finally there. So uh, the, the player who, who sort of got me thinking in this direction is the younger of the two Emer brothers, Mikhail. Um, 
and he's broken in the top 100. I think you tweeted yesterday, this is a huge breakthrough season for him with a bunch of challenger titles. And this is from a guy who didn't even qualify for Australian Open qualifying. Uh, so is he doing something different? Is he is he a better player than he was a year ago? Um, well, the talent to do something like this has always been there. Uh, he has always been viewed as the more um, talented of the two brothers, actually. Um, but he has had quite a bit of attitude problems and some suggestions that he's not uh, been willing to put the work in uh, needed. And uh, he has talked about the value of having a proper off-season uh, this time. He's had some injury problems before, and uh, so just getting ready for the new season seems to have been big for him. Um, but in terms of what, what he's doing on court... Uh, well, the two major things is that he uh, has improved his serve and his forehand, uh, which are still a little bit of liabilities, uh, but they are much better than they were 12 months ago. Uh, he uh, And he steps up, steps up more into the court and tries to be aggressive, whereas before he has just been far behind the baseline and, and relying on his retrieval skills, which are great, but that's not how you get into the top 100, uh, basically. Yeah, and that's a great segue to my next question, which is bringing back hipster hero Mike Cation. He, he said in a, in a podcast with Carl on his 30 Love podcast that to him, the challenger players who succeed and are able to sort of graduate to the tour level are the ones who have some way to finish points. So they don't just rely on having excellent retrieval skills. Because if you look at the guys between number 100 and number 200 in the rankings, you've got a lot of guys who are really quick, really resourceful. They can keep a rally going, good defensive skills. But maybe that's most of what they have. And some of the times that I've seen Mikhail, he he looks like one of those guys. Um do you think that improving the serve, improving the forehand, just generally being more aggressive, is is he now the sort of player who is able to finish points? He will be able to graduate to the next level? Um, on challenger level, yes, because we've seen that. But I'm hesitant about uh, what he can do on, on the main tour uh, because he's not going to get the same time to uh, build up points and, and so forth and people players are going to take time away um, on his forehand more efficiently, uh, which we saw this week he still struggles a lot with. Uh, his forehand was, was not very good at all uh, in Milan. So I, um, I'm i not sure is, is the honest answer, which is the third time I've said this uh, this recording. But I don't... I'd, That's okay. I'm not sure about almost any of these things. <laughs> so if you were asking me these questions, I'd be up to at least 20 by now. Don't feel bad at all. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, his core coverage and his defensive abilities are so good. Um, they are, I would say, they are almost Diminar good. Uh, so he'll win. He'll win matches that way. Uh, that, but in terms of whether he can still stay as aggressive and and win points uh, by finishing it up with with a winner, uh, basically, I, I'm. I'm doubtful, at least at start. I think he'll get into it, but yeah, I'm I'm not too sure at this moment. Has he played very much on clay? Is he comfortable on clay? Yeah, that's probably his best surface, yeah. Okay, because uh, some of the things you're saying about him, they match what I think about Kasparud. He, he, 
he's a very good retriever. Um, kind of, you can see he's been coached to be more aggressive, but he doesn't always do it. Um, and that can be okay if you're a clay court specialist. I mean, those guys aren't going to become David Ferrer, but they might become, I don't know, Leonardo Meyer or something, uh, which is an okay career. Um, Mikhail is... 21. Is he older than Casper? Yeah, yeah. by a few months. Yeah. I, I was thinking he was one year younger, but he's a few months older than Casper. So he's he's 18 spots behind Casper Rude in the rankings, and, and there's at least some similarities in their game style. I might be overstating how similar they are, but um, something something's there. So Casper's got a, a, a bit of an edge so far, both in the rankings now and their general career accomplishments, tour-level experience, and so on. Um do you think that Casper is going to be the more successful player in the long run as well? That's a great question. Um, well, I think what Casper has, which Mikkel doesn't, is is a dependable uh, forehand, and uh, it's definitely Casper's main weapon, if you ask me. Uh, the just the amount of spin he's able to to create, and he's gotten better at flattening it, flat, flattening it out as well. Uh, I think. I don't know, a best case scenario for both players, I think Mikkel might just edge it, but if we're talking about mean, uh, I think Casper might edge it because we have seen Casper being able to do it on the main tour at least a little bit this year. And uh, I think it's clear that he will progress a little bit more. Uh, He probably will never be a consistent top 20 player. Uh, But yeah, I I think think there's... Potent more probably a little bit more potential for Mikkel, but I think Casper. I I don't know. He's he's more solid, and he he's he has shown he can do it already. And generally, you have to think Norwegians are just a little better, right? <laughs> uh, that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next time we'll we'll really dig into that. Yeah. Um, so Mikhail's older brother, who we've been watching for a longer time, Elias Imer, um, he's two years older, three years older? Uh, two years, yeah. Okay, so he's, he's still fairly young, 23? 23, yeah. Um, but he, he's kind of, it feels like he's reached his peak around the, around 100 in the, in the world. We haven't heard much of him since he broke through to that level, I don't think. Um, and it, is there more potential there? Could we see him take a bigger step forward in the next few years? Um, I think so. Uh, he his uh, problems are um, confidence related and consistency related uh, mostly. Uh, he shows a couple of times a year. He goes out and shows he has a lot of tennis in him uh, and just blows uh, everyone off the court on challenger level, I should say. should say he wouldn't be able to do it on main tour. But, and, and his forehand is uh, really good when it's on. It's a lot better than Mikkel's. Uh, but I, I, like I said, Mikkel has always been seen as a more talented one. And um, Elias, I, I think he will never be a consistent top 50 player here, if, if you ask me. But I think he can be a... Uh, main tour regular if he sorts a couple of issues out um he ha- he's been scrambling around for a coach for years basically uh he uh, partnered up with Söderling uh 
year or two ago and looked they looked great together before they split uh so i think he needs to find a coach which who gives him uh correct uh sorry uh, direction on on the court in terms of what to do and so forth but it seems like he's in the right place to do that there's so many great swedish coaches mm. um but yeah it, it, it i guess it's tough if you are at that level in the in the rankings it's tough to get the top coaches to yeah. be really excited unless they see something um so normally i try to wrap these up at about after about an hour and we are at that point but i have two more I, we're, we're skipping past like 10 questions i had <laughs> but two more that i don't want to miss one is uh, i've noticed over the years there's a lot of prominent swedish chair umpires uh, we have Lars Graf, Mohamed Layani, um, Luis Azamar Engzel. Um, any theories why we have so many notable Swedish chair umpires? Um, so, yeah, I saw this question uh, in the show notes and I honestly hadn't thought of it at all. Uh, I uh, asked Alex, um, whom I mentioned earlier, who runs uh, Tennis Portalen, and uh, he didn't know either. So, basically, I... I I don't know. I know we've had quite a few uh, prominent Swedish referees in football, uh, soccer. That is so. Maybe, maybe there's just something in general about Swedes liking rules. I don't know. I I'm, <laughs> I'm completely guessing here. I uh, the honest answer again is I don't know. Okay. Well, something else to think about. Um, and this is a bit of a big open-ended question, but. In, I, in the last couple of months, I've basically tuned out of Twitter. I mean, I, I, I've stopped tweeting before, but I'm kind of just doing an experiment where I don't follow tennis Twitter at all. It's not because I, you know, I, it's not, I'm not holding anything against anybody, but I'm just trying to follow tennis without being quite so plugged into the stream. And it's kind of hard these days. I mean, when I first started following tennis as intensely as I do now, like, I think there were more of it was happening on blogs. Um, there were more there were more online magazines that had daily content but i think if you're if you exclude twitter from your stream then there's a few magazines um you can always get like the the official news from tournaments from federations from associated press and things like that but there's not a lot of of ongoing content and i'm i know you're a lot more active than i am on twitter but I mean, what's what's your daily routine to follow tennis? I mean, I know it starts with watching a lot of it, but I mean, what are the sources you're relying on to stay as informed as you are? Uh, well, it, it's tough without Twitter. Uh, I uh, took about a month of Twitter earlier this year as well, and I realized just how hard it is to follow. So uh, basically what I did then is just, I listened to a lot of tennis podcasts, um, and I... Um, and then you realized that anything was better than listening to Carl and I. So that drove you back to Twitter? Is that what happened? <laughs> Basically, yeah. No, um, I, I don't know. It's Like I said, it's hard without Twitter. And um, I, uh, well, the tennis subreddit is decent for that kind of thing. Um, but basically anything I, uh, I, I, aside from podcasts, anything I consume uh tennis news wise uh originate from twitter so i i'm afraid i don't have any good advice on that topic maybe there isn't any and certainly in the sort of tennis hipster level of stuff i i don't know what it would be or what it would even even look like because sometimes i'll see a score that 
either makes me laugh or there will be some situation where the, the, the live scores say that a player defaulted a match and I'll want to know what the story is. And I mean, that's at the challenger level, that stuff doesn't show up in the news. Mm-hmm. So I mean, somebody was watching on Twitter, though. Somebody's going to know what the story is or who was insulting who at the, at the handshake, things like that, right. which is, of course, really crucial to know for our day-to-day lives. We have to keep up with this stuff. Um, so yeah, that's all, all great stuff. I could probably keep us going for another hour just with the questions we didn't touch on and the the follow-up questions I could ask, but, uh, I'll let you move on with your day. The, The hilarious thing about starting with the, the tennis hipster business is that this is the first day of the, the London tour finals and (laughs) the first match has happened. I, I presumably it's over. We're recording this in the time between the two matches, but I forgot to even check the score. So... I think, can you put that on your list, Eric, that the ultimate tennis hipster thing is to record a podcast about challenger tennis without even looking at the score of a world tour finals match? <laughs> that must qualify, right? That, that has to qualify, yeah. Uh, I, I'll put it on. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> another, another entry on the list. So... Uh, Everyone, thank you for listening. Be sure to follow Eric on Twitter. Um, if you have any interest in reading or learning how to read Swedish <laughs> tennis portal, and <laughs> Google translates okay too. And there's also I noticed there's some English translations on the site, yeah. not too many, but but some. And the the t- podcast also in Swedish, the Source Potent. Uh, as soon as I decide to learn Swedish, that's my first stop, which admittedly is a little ways down the road. Um, and in general, if, if people have any suggestions for content for the podcast, other guests for the podcast, I'd be interested to hear it. I'm sort of deciding where to take this whole project in general. So I'd be interested in your feedback. So thanks everyone for listening. And Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, yeah, pleasure being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And keep up the good work, keeping us informed about tennis, Swedish and otherwise. Mm -hmm. So again, everyone, thank you for listening and, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time.